The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. liturgical year on the Restoration Radio Network. The show seeks to look at feasts that occur throughout our liturgical year and give a deeper explanation so that the faithful can have a better understanding, appreciation, devotion, and hopefully participation in the liturgy. With me today is Father Charles McGuire. And Father has a number of, of different duties, which he can tell you about sometime. Um, Father, it's uh, great to have you on with us. It's nice to be here, Stephen. Thank you. Now, Father and I did not have an opportunity to do a zero show last year. Our schedules and unfortunately sickness intervened a little bit, and we still are hoping to do a zero show maybe later this year uh, where you can learn a little bit more about Father's vocation and backstory and, and his love of the liturgy. But we're really going to get right into it. This is uh, show number one. And we're going to start at the beginning. Father made a point in pre-production for the show that we really have to start by talking about why true liturgical devotion is important in one's spiritual life. And when we say that liturgical devotion, we're saying it not in opposition to private devotion, but that there's a superiority there. And I think that's as good a place for us to start as any father. So can you talk about that a bit? Well, yes, yeah, Stephen, there's um, a popular saying, or not really popular, but a certain priest uh, many years back said something very nice. He said that um, I make my morning meditation in order that I might say my mass well, and I offer my mass well so that I might make the next day's meditation well. And so these, the private devotion and the liturgical devotion sort of help each other out. They're not an obstacle or in opposition, as you said, uh, to each other, but they help each other out, really. Um, one of the sad things to see today, though, is people's ignorance or forgetfulness of this fact, how liturgical devotion is really the superior one and should be attended to with, with more fervor, with more devotion, with more love. In Milwaukee, I remember when I was pastor there, resident pastor there for a couple of years, uh, there's a parishioner that he's very devout, loves the liturgy, but he would come just on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, which is more than many people do. But Nonetheless, it wasn't until I left Milwaukee that he realized 
he should have been there at every mass every day. And so now whenever there's mass there, whether it's every day or just on the weekend, he's always there. You know, it's not until we lose something that we realize, hey, I really missed out. Um, but in any case, the these two things sort of help each other out, as we, we just said. And uh, again, just saying it again, the liturgical prayer and ceremonies should have the upper hand, if you will, should take precedence. Um, because remember that the liturgical ceremonies is one of the chosen and main avenues of grace that God has chosen and given us for our sanctification. So we should, uh, we should always try to remember that. Um, and if you don't mind, this might be a little bit off of that, that subject, but I want to say this anyway. I, when I was preparing for this show, I came across a part in the book, Soul of the Apostolate. And in the, at the end, there's a whole section on the liturgy and its importance. It says that it speaks of an eternal liturgy which, in which the three divine persons, they chant one to another, their divine life, their, their sanctity. They do this in a hymn of what they call, what the book called the generation of the word and the procession of God, the Holy Ghost. Then it goes on to say that God wanted to be praised outside of himself. That is by, by creation. So he made the angels to sing their beautiful sanctus that we sing in the mass every day. He created the visible world. As it says in scripture, they began to announce the glory of God. He made man so that he too might offer praise to God. But yet none of this gave God the praise that he deserved to have. Um, so when our Lord became man, then that sort of united heaven and earth and made man's praise more divine, if you will, because there is both God and man, uh, that is the incarnation. And so it is God who then praises God. And so before leaving earth, our Lord instituted a new sacrifice, new sacraments. But then there's a third part that he gave us that we should never forget. He gave us the liturgy, the symbols and ceremonies and prayers of the liturgy so that we might more perfectly honor God and so that we might understand more and gain profit by all of these things. And so by taking part in liturgical services, we begin to do here on earth what we'll do in heaven for all eternity. Um, so that's that's kind of like an introduction to it and the importance and the beauty of, of liturgical devotion, Stephen. I, I think that's that's beautiful, Father, and I, I, I don't think that's off topic at all. I think it really brings brings back home what you were talking about, that the Mass is, is nothing less than uniting heaven and earth, and that the amount of graces that are there for you are unbelievable. Uh, Bishop Dolan, because uh, I had, I had lamented to him on numerous occasions uh, that, that I wish more people took advantage of, of daily Mass, that... Um, he said, and I think he quoted on last night's uh, show, uh, his show with uh, Justin, um, Clerical Conversation on the Crisis, he said, our Lord goes about at Mass 
with graces looking for whom he can give them to. Something along those lines that our Lord's literally there uh, giving, giving those away. And I think that's part of what you were talking about just now. The other part that I was really hoping we can get into, we talked about this a long time ago in, in pre-production for the show concept a, a, as a whole, was what you know as, as part of reciting the breviary that you get access to other texts and other points of meditation that, frankly, the laity don't simply because it's not their literal office to say the office. So um, it'll always be nice whenever you can to hear some of those insights from the office because those are things we don't, we don't have a chance to prep our meditations with the office, and you do. And so that's always, always nice to hear those insights. And, and Father, we you know, why you, you, you told that story about that man in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. How can you contextualize the busyness of daily life, children, jobs, et cetera, around attendance of daily mass? And, and I want to make sure that we're, we're clarifying, this is clearly not for people in mission areas where you get mass once a month or in a place where you, you, you maybe only get it on Sundays. We're talking about people who have access to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass on a daily basis. So for those people who have geographic access within a reasonable distance, let's say 30 minutes, how do you contextualize job, family, uh, marital responsibilities with attendance at daily Mass? Clearly, it's not required by the church, but how should we as Catholics who aren't content with simply doing the minimum how should we look at the liturgy and, and daily mass as, as part of our spiritual life? Well, obviously, um, everyone's first duty, and I think this has to be has to be expressed. Everyone's first duty is to fulfill the duties of their state. So obviously, you can't skip work to go to mass out of devotion. That would not be right. That's um, because you sanctify yourself by fulfilling your duties of state. But that being said, um, whenever there's a possibility of getting to Mass uh, at the end of a workday, at the beginning of a workday, or maybe you can skip out and go on lunch break. In certain uh, chapels, you can do that, especially like here at St. Gertrude's. We have oftentimes three, four Masses per day, a weekday. So... But I always remind people of that promise of our Lord in sacred scripture. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. That's a promise of our Lord. If we seek to serve God by our prayers, by attendance at mass especially, and other liturgical services, vespers when it's available, tenebrae and holy week, matins and lots for Christmas. When we do those things, then it in turn helps us to get more done during the day. And people forget that. But that's a fulfillment of that promise of Scripture. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will follow. So that's what I, first and foremost, what I would say about that. That when it's possible, get to Mass. Don't worry about the rest. That God will see to everything else. Um, you know, it's it's really sad to see 
when the priest comes out to the altar, he comes out to an empty church. You know, for a zealous priest that really cares about liturgy and the salvation of souls, it's very, in a way, disheartening. So that's my reminder to people. Seek first the kingdom of God. Well, and especially if you have multiple time options, if you if you're not just stuck in and say, well, they only offer mass at eight, I've got to be at work at eight. You know, if there's an earlier mass offered and that's an opportunity, I think I just want to offer that as a, how can I say, a charitable challenge to my fellow Catholics that if mass is available to you, you know, think about your particular judgment. Think about you know what what will be said for you about the masses. How it, the positive aspect is how will the masses you did attend outside of Sunday testify for you, but in the same way, how will the masses you didn't attend testify against you? Um, and uh, if, if the spirit of myself, someone who's not aiming for purgatory, um, you know, you want to store up as many graces as possible, and, and the obviously the richest deposit of graces is available for us at Mass. Oh, absolutely. And it all goes back to the fact, again, that everyone knows, but it's always nice to hear again, that you're not just offering another private devotion. You know, a Hail Mary here and there is is a beautiful thing and very meritorious. Uh, many, you know, you read in the lives of the saints of how the they would exchange almost anything for just one more minute on earth to say one Hail Mary uh, because the merit of a Hail Mary is so great. But in the Mass, you are taking part in the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God. It is the perfect prayer. It's a perfect sacrifice. There's no better way to make up for past sins, to shorten your purgatory, um, attain graces for yourself and others, temporal favors. You know, you're, you're worried about an exam or uh, health issues, what have you. If you want an answered prayer, Go kneel at the altar during Mass and watch the only begotten Son being offered to his eternal Father. That is the most perfect form of worship that you have. And the office, just as a side note, the office is an extension of the Mass. So it is actually, it's a sad thing to see so many people not coming to Vespers on Sundays when it's available. But we have to remember that is the, after the Mass, that is the most perfect form of worship is the divine office but uh, in any case i guess we're still talking more about the mass than anything else but those would be some of my my thoughts there on that well and and part of 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 this witness as you say being there at calvary father it's not always the same the beauty of the liturgical season is it keeps in mind human nature that we we have to observe change and see that both in our physical environment. I know I've been I've been reading that uh, you all have been hit pretty hard there in the United States with uh, with weather lately. So mm -hmm. there's not just a, a physical aspect to the change in our seasons. That's why we have rogation days and ember days, but also these big events. So we just come out of the Christmas period. We're we're in Epiphany now. Um, I obviously want to get into Epiphany and set us up for the the, the feast that we're going to explore in February. But can you first speak about the reasons for the seasons in the liturgy and and how we are to to look at those seasons? Well, yes. The each season there are six 
actually six seasons, unless you want to count Epiphany, then it becomes seven. But most authors will put tie in at Christmas and Epiphany together. Each one of those seasons has a different theme. So we should, first of all, remember, attendance at liturgical services is not something that you just do. Just go to Mass and, oh, I've gone to Mass, and then go about your business. No, the liturgical life is something that you try to live day in, day out. And that's the purpose of what we call the liturgical cycle or the different liturgical seasons and feasts. It helps you to put into practice some doctrine of the faith some virtue that Christ has taught us. So, for instance, um, Epiphany. What do we commemorate in this season? Well, we commemorate the, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. It is the calling of the Gentiles to the true faith, the Christian faith or the Catholic faith. Then, when we think of them, the three kings coming from far off in the east, long journey following the star of Bethlehem. Finally, they arrive. They've seen Herod and all of that. Um, now they kneel before the Messiah and they offer their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When we think of that, then what? What do we think of? We think of the gratitude that we must have for having been called to the faith ourselves than to seek God with a, with a deep faith. This is the spirit with which we should observe epiphany, this gratitude for calling the Gentiles and ourselves to the true faith and live that by not only believing what the church teaches, but trying to live the faith. That's the most important thing. And so on with all the other seasons, they each have a particular theme to teach us that we should, we should learn from. Um, go ahead. Um, go ahead, Father. Well, I was just going to say, to give other examples, you know, going back to, um, if you don't mind, I'll just take a brief minute with all, going through all six of the seasons, if you don't mind, uh, and telling what, what, I'll just tell what each of them uh, what lesson we should learn. Well, Advent, of course, takes us back to the time of the prophets before the coming of the Messiah. So there we read in the breviary, we read the about the fall of Adam and Eve in the state of human beings before the redemption, but after the fall of Adam and Eve. So we're made to think of our own sins. Then this in turn urges us to a sort of mortification, trying to overcome self and our evil inclination, and also to meditate, form a sort of spirit of recollection throughout the day, and long for the coming of Christ, because he's the only one that can free us from our sins. That's the purpose of Advent, and that naturally leads into Christmas, and as we reflect on our Lord's birth, we reflect on the fact that we also should be, in a spiritual sense, born again, and undergo a complete reformation, if you will, become more childlike. Uh, then this goes into Septuagesima and Lent. Again, we're considering our sins, resolving to amend our lives and to do 
penance for it as we go through those 40 days of fasting. Um, in Holy Week, of course, we're meditating on the Passion. Finally, his uh, our Lord's spirit of atonement for sins and how we should in turn do penance, more and more penance, to make up for that. Then this naturally leads to the Paschal season or Easter tide when we commemorate our Lord's resurrection and in turn our own spiritual resurrection from the life of sin to the life of grace. Then finally Pentecost, we think of the coming of the Holy Ghost on the apostles in the cynical, the first um, the first Pentecost. And we are taught to try to become more docile to the actions of the Holy Ghost in the soul, his inspirations, uh, the, the grace is given in the sacrament and in the liturgy as well. So that's a brief summary of what each of the seasons teach us and how we should live them. Well, and it's interesting, Father, hearing you describe that, um, it, 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 it definitely puts in starker perspective how the Novus Ordo sect, which is broken away from the Catholic Church, um, has a season called Ordinary Time, that uh, you really can't think too much of the Mass if you think that any part of it's ordinary. <laughs> That's absolutely right. No, it's a sad thing. They they have done a lot to, to destroy the liturgy, and in turn, uh, because the liturgy should be a, such a important part of the spiritual life, it has in turn destroyed the spiritual lives of, of many of the people. So it's a it's a sad thing. It's really done a lot of harm to the to the salvation of souls in that sense. Now, Father, you talk about the fact that Epiphany and Christmas are seen by a lot of authors as the same season. It's hard, and and this is a discussion maybe either for later this season uh, in on our on our show or for another time. But one of the struggles of of Catholics is our celebration of Christmas versus the world celebration of Christmas and how we we, we have, to have to keep these separate lives. And for us, Christmas is still going. We're still very much in that festive season. How can we take the lessons of the liturgy and and explore it within how we're interacting with fellow Catholics and even with people at work when we talk about what season we're in liturgically? You know, we certainly don't want to uh, look all glum and, and wan during Lent because, you know, we're fasting. That's That's definitely not the way we want to show people that we're experiencing the season. Uh, so by the same token, what do we do it in the Epiphany and, and Christmas time period um, as Catholics and with both within the liturgy and without in order to participate in the season a bit more? Well, that's a good question. I, I think it's a very important one too. So yes, we should continue our joys. Um, one family in, at one of the, the parishes that uh, I helped take care of, one family actually started, you know, all of the external celebrations, putting up the tree and um, opening gifts, started actually the day of Christmas or the day after, and slowly uh, it kind of culminated into, the, well, finally the tree's up and everything, and now they're truly celebrating Christmas. The trees ordinarily, uh, I think, in my opinion, a good habit to get into is don't put your tree up too early in, in Advent. Wait till maybe the last week or so, then put it up. 
maybe during the um, Gaudete Sunday, which is the third Sunday of Advent, when the priest wears the rose-colored vestments, it's sort of a mitigated, joyful Sunday. Then um, keep it up if you can, if the tree survives this long. Keep it up till purification or the, the eve of the purification, which is in early February, and we'll talk about that. But keep it up. Observe the Christmas in the home. Keep up your, your nativity scenes. Um, and spend time in adoration of the divine child. That should be a part of every Catholic home during this time is, is every day, kneel before the, the crash, the nativity scene of your home, and just adore. Think of the, the different virtues of our Lord's divine infancy and how you can put them into practice. Those are, you know, and again, if you want, it should, the daily rosary should be a part of every Catholic family's spiritual life. But during this time, I would really um, encourage people to do an extra decade of the rosary. Just pray the third joyful mystery of the rosary before the, the crib each night for the peace that only our Lord can bring and that, that peace that we so desire around the time of Christmas. Um, that would be a little bit of what I would encourage. And, and Father, you touched on that a little bit there as to how our, as you say, the seasons within the liturgy change, but even you could say the seasons within our own private devotion changes. When we're staring there at the crib, it's certainly a different view of our Lord than we think of during Lent when we think of, you know, the scourging. And I think maybe the, the most basic thing that appeals to us there is the sort of helplessness of our Lord as a child, that he's there. And um, when I say vulnerable, I mean in appearance. That's, you know, as a baby, he's, he's come and he's, there's, a, there's a trust there for us. Is there, is there a particular, and I'm sure there are, you know, the saints could give us lots of different ways, but can you tell us a little bit about how, you're, how you look, pray, maybe not pray differently, but when you're asking for different graces or, or you're meditating, how, the, how meditating on the divine infant during this season is different perhaps from other seasons? Yeah, so I think for everyone, it's going to be a little bit different, you know, depending on a little bit of their character, their temperament. Some are, are you know, some are more inclined to think of, to, to love the devotion of the Holy Infancy and others more towards the, the crucified Savior, others toward the risen Lord. Um, everyone's going to have a little bit different way of approaching each of these, but I would say, as you mentioned, as you hit upon, that our Lord God, think of that, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who is infinitely powerful, can do all things, he's almighty, all-knowing, he's omnipresent, he's everything, to an, he's every perfection to an infinite degree. And yet then, in order to save man, he becomes a tiny little baby. His hands can't even reach out to touch the, the donkey and the ox that are there beside him. Yet he has the power to create. And this is all hidden beneath his human nature. And so it, it teaches us a bit about humility. 
So when we go before him, maybe we can ask for the virtue of humility. Um, uh, I also remember reading, and I like this thought, I think I used it in a sermon somewhere, but Bishop Sheen once gave a sermon and he, he likened, he gave an analogy and said that to teach us about the humility of God in doing this, becoming man. He said, God becoming man is something like a man who would become a dog. You know, we think that's repulsive to become a dog, to live like a dog, to eat with them, to do all things with them. And yet, here's our Lord. He becomes a man. God becomes man. So there's all sorts of ways of approaching it through his humility, through his uh, simplicity, um, through his, his thinking of the love of, of God for us in, in sending his own son for the sole purpose of being able to suffer for us. That was the reason he became man, because as God, he, he couldn't suffer. Um, I don't know. Does that sort of answer your question, though, no, Stephen? Absolutely answers the question. And I, I've been enjoying, I should say, maybe enjoying a little too much, a tradition that's still alive in some countries. It's, it's alive in Louisiana, at least, uh, within the United States, uh, which is the tradition of um, king's cake. Uh, it's called Bois du Galette here in, uh, in France. But uh, king's cake uh, is a delicious pastry, which I've eaten far too much of in the last few days. I'm actually going to a, another Bois du Galette party tomorrow to eat some more, but um, it's a wonderful tradition. It's a type of pastry that's only found in and around the Epiphany period, which is fascinating, just realizing how deep our Christian roots are, even in a place that's been so denuded as Europe has of Christianity over the last centuries, that it, you know, there are people who are completely godless who participate in, in eating the Bois de Galette, and it's only available for about four weeks every year. But it's this delicious pastry, has a sort of almond egg custard taste to it. But within the within the the larger, so you can buy a little pocket size just for yourself. You can buy a larger one. The larger ones always have a little either baby in it or a Virgin Mary with holding a baby. And whoever gets the slice that has the baby and it becomes the king or queen of of that feast. And and uh, the old tradition was then they would buy the next king's cake to eat and you would you would have that party once a week until uh, a Mardi Gras until the Tuesday before Lent started. So the celebration as you talk about within the liturgical year also had a joyful expression in the exter- in our external life that we would have this cake and even within the cake uh, was uh, a recognition of the season that there would be this little baby, it's helpless, it's within the middle. Uh, but then there's a responsibility upon you. It's all it's 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 all in good fun and it's lighthearted. But I, I do think there's some liturgical lessons even to be taken from pastry, Father. <laughs> oh, it's very true. You know, I uh, in my opinion, and actually my experience of of this sort of thing, it's very good for Catholic families, especially ones with younger children to get used to the idea of making these external observances in the home, having something like that. For instance, um, here at St. Gertrude's, um, on the Feast of Our Lady's Nativity, September 8th, 
they always have a birthday party in honor of baby Mary. So we should find those different customs. And I urge people to look them up uh, on the internet. You can always find what different countries do for these seasons, little observances in the home like that. They're very good and they teach the children a lesson. They teach them to love the liturgy and the, the liturgical spirit that we should have. So you're right, Stephen. I, I had never heard of that custom that you explained, but it sounds very nice. Yeah, there's uh, in Louisiana, obviously being a former French uh, colony, it has they have Louisiana king cake, which is, how can we say, far more colorful and less restrained than its older cousin. Uh, but it's got uh, different colors. It, and you can look it up on the internet, Louisiana King Cake, uh, for our listeners who are who are wondering about it. Uh, but it's the same sort of tradition, and I agree with Father. There's no reason why you can't. I mean, you don't have to be French. You don't have to live in France. The the recipe is not particularly difficult. There's not a lot of ingredients, and you could try try your hand or outsource it to a, a friend who is uh, a baking handy, and maybe you bring the you bring the uh, the cider or the uh, the rum or the eggnog to go with it. So find find a creative way to to celebrate the epiphany. I'm sorry, what uh, was that? I said so we can find a creative way to celebrate the epiphany, however you may. Oh, yeah. So so the epiphany is a preparation for the next part of our liturgical year, uh, and. When I say it's a preparation, the feast that we're going to talk about um, is a massive feast. Uh, when I, I suppose maybe I shouldn't use the term massive, but it's a it's it's a supremely important one. Uh, it has ramifications for uh, people entering the clerical state, for bishops who are uh, creating uh, oils and chrisms, for uh, faithful who are getting candles blessed or they want to have blessed candles. Um, also, as a punctuation point, as a as a finish to the season that we're currently in, it's it's a really uh, in in conception and in in how we look at it and in its biblical roots and its ties to Our Lady, it's it's a really big feast, Father. So I I, I understand right away that it's a challenge to even start to talk about it, but uh, but let's start. What how can how should we look at this feast and and what are our really big um, points of focus and, and departure when we're looking at this feast? Well, I think, first of all, any feast of Our Lady is, uh, is an extremely important one. In my opinion, it doesn't matter if it's a smaller one like Our Lady of La Salette or a great one like the Assumption or the, the Purification. These are great feasts. And Our Lady is... Um, you might say that she's more inclined, if we can so, to hear the prayers of her clients on those days. And so we should be sure to ask for special favors on any Feast of Our Lady, especially these bigger ones like the Purification. Um, like you said, there's so much to uh, say about it. It's, it's hard to know where to start. But I think, first of all, what is the background behind it. We know that the law of Moses, which we can read in the, the book of Leviticus, said that every Jewish mother had to, after she gave birth to a boy, was to abstain from services in the temple for 
for 40 days. And if she gave birth to a girl, then it was 80 days. Then at the end of this time, there would be a sort of churching, if you will, churching of a new mother, like we do in the traditional Catholic chapels nowadays. But when she came, the mother would have to offer a lamb about a year old as a holocaust, and then a pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering. The poor folk could offer two turtle doves. And then the, the mother would be purified from her ritual uncleanness. Now, that un, uncleanliness in the Old Testament law was a big thing. That's why they couldn't eat certain animals, um, ham, pigs, for, for instance. That's why the Jews, when they went to Pontius Pilate in the Passion, would not enter Pilate's house because there would be a sort of, um, they would then be unclean for the coming Pas Paschal sacrifice. So they had to wait outside. They couldn't enter the home of Pagan and all of that. So this um, uncleanliness was a big thing and there had to be a, a ritual purification and all of that. So that's why that is what the meaning of the feast of the purification is is that now i'll give you some history about it first uh before we go into any of, of the other devotional aspects and liturgical aspects um it was for the first time the first historical description of this feast was from the diary of etheria now i'm not sure who that is but it took place in the late 300s and it was celebrated not as a feast of Our Lady, but a feast of our Lord because our Lord was present at the presentation, obviously. And this lady mentions that in Jerusalem, and again, remember, this was in the late 300s, so it was a, an old and ancient feast. But in Jerusalem, the ceremonies began with a, a very beautiful procession in the morning. Then the priest would give a sermon on the gospel text, and then everything would end with Holy Mass. The festival was kept on not, this, not the 2nd of February, but the 14th, because the uh, birth of Christ was celebrated back then in Jerusalem on the Feast of the Epiphany. That's interesting to note. So then the presentation would take place 40 days after the Epiphany, which was February 14th. Um, the feast back then was just called simply the 40th day after Epiphany. Then it, the, this feast spread into other churches in the East, and they each had their different name for it. In the Latin rite, which is the, the rite of the... Uh, the chapels that we service, obviously. The first time that this feast appeared in liturgical books was probably in the seventh or eighth century, and it was and it was a feast of Our Lady, and it was celebrated on February second rather than the the fourteenth. And it was Pope Sergius the first, I believe, in the seven hundreds, who said that there was to be a procession done with candles. Uh, this was done, though, not only for the Feast of the Purification, but for the other three major Feasts of Our Lady, the Annunciation, Assumption, and Birth of Our Lady. During the procession, there's to be a, the litanies, litany of saints, and they were penitential. 
in nature. They would often be done uh, by the people who walked in the procession barefooted. Um, and the purple color was used for the vestments during the procession. And now we have a sort of remnant in our processions even today. We were purple for the candle blessing, but for the mass, we change over to white. So the, the candle procession that we do now is, is a very uh, penitential one, if you will. Um, another historical part, there's some dispute on this part, but some say that this feast of Candlemas or the purification the, in the procession with candles replaced a pagan festival. You, you notice that in history, how the church in her wisdom tries to replace pagan festivals with something similar, but under a Catholic aspect. And so there was what they called in, I think it was in, it took place in Rome or yes, it was in Rome and there was a feast called Lupercalia, which was a pagan feast. It was done to evil spirits, restore health and fertility to, to, to the people there and all of that. And so it was, they would have a pagan parade, candles and all of that. And so the church then replaced that when Rome was converted and began a feast in honor of Our Lady and carrying the candles. Um, so that's a bit of the history. I guess that's where I wanted to start for that. But before I go on, was there any, did you have any comment or? No, I think that I, I'm probably just as fascinated as some of our listeners about the history and the backstory. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, it's a very interesting to learn about the history of our different feasts. It's, uh, it makes your appreciation of the liturgy all the greater if you know the historical background um, but I guess again the highlight of that feast is the blessing of candles so before I get into what exactly takes place in the, the ceremony of the blessing of candles I think I'll ex I, it would be best to explain a little bit about the sacramental candles, just in general, blessed candles. These are some of the oldest sacramentals in the church. Um, also, it's very widely used. You'll notice that in all the sacraments except one, candles are used. The only one exception being confession. Obviously, there's no candle used there, but in all the other sacraments, it's used. In baptism, the Godfather is presented with a candle. In holy orders, the candidate to the priesthood presents the ordaining bishop with a candle during uh, around the offertory. So on with all the other sacraments. In extreme unction, it was always the custom, at least in the olden days, to present the the dying man with a candle to hold, a blessed candle. So there's great symbolism behind this candle. First of all, the wax is made of wax, which is produced by bees. It's a, a pure form of wax. This represents the pure body of Christ who was born of a virgin. Inside the candle represents the soul of Christ. 
And finally, the flame on top represents his, uh, our Lord's divinity, the fact that he's God. And when, we, when the Catholic carries one of these blessed candles, uh, the lighted candle reminds us of our Lord's gospel and the Holy Bible because the gospel is alone what dispels the darkness. It lifts ignorance from the world. You know, in the, in the French Revolution and all of that, they always spoke about an, uh, an enlightenment and all of that. But the world can never enlighten you. The gospel can. And so it is a symbol of the gospel, if you will, enlightening the whole world. It also, when a candle is given to the church, it's another interesting symbol. When it's given to the church rather than to an individual person, it symbolizes self-sacrifice. You notice all the candles on the altar, how they burn and they, they burn until they're gone. And that's a symbol of how each person should be in the service of Christ, spend himself you know, give up his life if necessary. So that's a, a bit of the symbolism behind the candles. And so that leads us to the blessing of candles on Candlemas. Why do we, why do we have this blessing on Candlemas? It all goes back to the Holy Simeon. You remember this story, Our Lady and St. Joseph brought our Lord to the temple. Simeon was already an old man, could barely get around. Uh, he was nearing death. But he was given a promise by God that he would not see death until he were to see the Messiah. So when Our Lady came into the temple with our blessed Lord in arms, the Holy Ghost inspired Simeon to come over to the temple, and he did. He followed that inspiration of the Holy Ghost and came into the temple and immediately though there were many mothers there present to present their child in the temple immediately he recognized our lady as the mother of the redeemer and went right over to her and mary handed him the divine infant and he blessed god with that beautiful canticle the nunc dimittis which the priest reads every night in compline now thou dismiss the servant in peace according to thy word during this canticle, he says, prefer, refers to Christ as a light to the revelation of the Gentiles. And that's the reason we bless candles on this day. It symbolizes Christ as the light of the world and how he'll bring many souls of the Gentile world as well to the, the true faith. So that's a, a great symbol there. And when we carry them in procession, and this is always the part that kids love most, when they get to light their candles during mass and during the procession, carry around a lighted candle. Uh, kids love that. They just, they eat it all up, so to speak. And so parents should realize that. Their kids love it. Their kids will, if they're present at these liturgical functions, will love the liturgy. They'll want to go to mass so just so they can carry the candle. And they grow up learning to love it. So I urge parents to, to, you know, bring their kids to these things. But as you're carrying the candle in procession, you should also imagine yourself being the light of the world. You are, just as the, the candle represents Christ, you're holding Christ. 
and you're, you're carrying him around and all of that, you should also remember that spiritually speaking, we all carry Christ in our heart if we have sanctifying grace. Um, we carry Christ in our heart and we should carry him everywhere with us and letting his life show to the whole world that we might uh, bring the Gentiles, all these non-Catholics and unbelievers to the true faith and to, to the true light of the world who is Christ himself. Those are some of the, the thoughts I would give for the procession. I think it, I, I was particularly edified, Father, um, and I want to make sure I, I, I noted this correctly because I was taking notes on some of what you were saying. So just to, within the body of the candle itself, the wax represents the body of our Lord, the wick represents the soul, and the flame represents his divinity. Did I get that correctly? Yes, you did. It was interesting to me as you were talking about that light, a couple of reflections came came to me. One was the the fact that almost I, I can't imagine I, I at least I don't know anybody who remembers um their baptism where their baptismal candle was lit. But it's certainly a, a callback for that for us. It reminded me of the scene in uh in the movie Beckett in which there's an excommunication and um Thomas of Beckett reads the, the excommunication and then all the candles are turned over and snuffed out and that 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 light i suppose also represents sanctifying grace within us and and when we're not in the state of grace that there is a loss of that light it's a very good um uh picture it's a good mental image to to keep in mind uh, oh absolutely absolutely I think the other thing that came to mind also was uh, for people like myself who prefer uh, light to darkness, or I wouldn't say that I get clinically depressed when it's dark most of the year, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm never happy when it's dark at 5 p.m. That uh, I, at this time, again, talking about the seasons, and I understand I'm being very northern hemispheric centric here because it's not true for our brothers and sisters in the south, but that this is the time of year where we're going to start to see more light, that we're not going to see those 5 p.m. blackouts anymore. We're making progress towards uh, our Lord as light in a, in a larger sense. Um, and that this is, a, I don't want to say a sneak preview, because I, I think by the time we get to the winter solstice, which is around Christmas time, we already see that that turn. But this is another sign of that indication of, of there being more light than darkness um, in our days. And uh, that the candle is a really apt analog for that uh, in the liturgical sense, but it, it really matches well with what's going on in real life. And I suppose back to what you said originally, the, the liturgical life is real life. It's just that sometimes we, we don't see that connection. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You are, you're completely right there. But, um, yeah, I think, again, remember that, uh, and again, I don't want to go too much into that, but going back to living this liturgical life, that not only does each season have a particular theme, but each feast has one. You know, the life of a saint shows you how the saints, they live the liturgy, they live the liturgical life, and you see the fruits of it in their holiness. And so also, yeah, you have to, to live candlemas. 
Let your light shine before men. Show it to the world, not in a prideful sense, but simply live the liturgical life, live the Christian life as it is meant to be lived, and do your good works. Remember, that's another symbol, actually, of this candle is um, the good deeds that you should have, that, that light to the world is your good deeds. Um, it's, and it goes to show also, according to one author, he says that there were three, three other meanings for that. And one is faith. But also he says, remember that um, faith without works is dead. And that light represents the good works. So we should. We should live candlemas on that day and forever. Let your, your good works shine before men and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Father, we look at this as a, a Marian feast, and it is rightly so. Is there an aspect, we think about the, the presentation of our Lord and, uh, along, alongside with the purification of Our Lady, is, there, is that another dimension that we need to be mindful of? at this feast? It is, most definitely. That, that's the other part of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, is not only the purification, <clears throat> but also the fact that the firstborn of every mother was to be consecrated to God. And so that is also what, what our Lord was doing. We have to remember that even though he was a, a helpless baby, he's still God. And he performed this action of giving himself over to God in the temple with a free will. It was his decision to do this and to give himself to God. That should also be our mentality, our thought process during this time. Our Lord gave himself to God, and so should we. We should dedicate ourselves to the service of God and uh, try to live it day in and day out by, again, going back to the subject of these talks, primarily, I would say, by living a liturg liturgical life. That's the quickest way to arrive at perfection, is to live out liturgical life. Um, now, does that answer your question? It, it does. And um, we're going to get a little bit more into this in later shows. I, I, I don't want to take too much focus away from show number one. But in the traditional liturgy, this is called a double of the second class. What um, does that mean? It's, it's just not as important because it's not a double of the first class or how, how can we, how do we understand that within the context of the fact that you've said that this is a very important feast? Well, uh, there are several rankings of feasts. And again, if, um, we can always get into that later and do a, a deeper explanation, but the highest feast ranking feast is a double of the first class. Those are feasts like Easter, um, Pentecost, the, the great feasts such as those, um, many of the feasts of our Lord. And this one is, you might say a little bit, just a less ranking. Uh, you know, lower ranking in a sense, but still, it's the second highest ranking feast that there is. And so, um, 
you know, it's still a very important feast. We should uh, we should never think that it's not. Father, is there anything else that we're, you'd like us to focus on or talk about regarding this feast um, before uh, before we move on? I have one other point, but I wanted to ask you if you had any. Um, well, actually, there is one more point, I think, uh, just a small one, that I think is uh, important for this feast as well. And that might stir up the devotion of some people that it's also a sorrowful, in a way, a sorrowful feast, at least one aspect. Remember that prophecy of Simeon, that a a sword shall pierce thy heart. And it's because of this prophecy that uh, we commemorate in this feast that we see so many images of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart pierced with those seven seven swords. So we can also have a... uh, devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows on this this great feast. And that's I think that's another a minor thought to this this whole feast. Um, one of the things that I've observed before has been that so, sometimes so within the liturgical life also there's within seminary life that Candlemas is sometimes used as an opportunity to present tonsure to to clerics. I know this isn't true for, this is true for some congregations and it's different customs in different places. Are you familiar with that practice, uh, Father, and on what feast did you receive your tonsure? <laughs> well, it's a very good question. I'm, I Actually, I did not know that that was the, the custom. I'm assuming you would be referring to the CMRI who I think, if I'm not mistaken, do a lot of their uh, ordinations on on or near the Feast of Our Lady, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which is a good practice. You know, the, the priest is an altar Christus, and Our Lady looks at the priest as a, as a sort of another son. So Our Lady has a special devotion towards uh, towards the priest and a special care and love for them because he represents her divine, her son, her divine son, an altar Christus. Um, now, when did I receive tonsure? It must, I don't remember the exact date. If I'd known you were going to ask that question, I would have brought my certificate. <laughs> I was sorry, Father, but, <laughs> but I believe that it was um, sometime in the, the late spring, early summer, um, after my second year of the seminary, uh, in the major seminary. But I don't believe that it had any connection to do with uh, with the Feast of Our Lady. Okay. All right. So it's not it's not anything that was a it's not a widely uh, liturgical practice. It could just be a particular congregation or a particular um, custom that that may be that way but it's not a widespread clearly because you you didn't receive it on there it's not something it's a, a widespread tradition i know bishop sanborn is one for adhering to tradition so i wouldn't expect him to to miss <laughs> one established right um so obviously what's what's interesting about a feast that tell, that has candles as part of its celebration and and worship is that 
we put them to use the very next day. And mm-hmm. we have uh, the Feast of St. Blaise. And it's interesting because this was something even when I was in the Novus Ordo that was observed. It was something that, that had that had staying power, even, you know, with all the destruction that the Novus Ordo wreaks upon Catholicism and upon the liturgy, that they still managed to preserve, at least in some way, this, this reflection of Catholicism. Can you tell us a little bit about St. Blaise beyond the fact that we know he helps us with our throat ailments? I'm worried that sometimes that's all we know St. Blaise for. And uh, how the how the candles come to bear and uh, tell us a little bit about more about the saint so we we can appreciate him and uh, and ask for his intercession in a, a more meaningful way this year as we come up on his feast. Yes, I think uh, as you said, he's one of those very obscure saints. Everyone knows him, but if you were to ask anyone, well, what did he do? I think that very few would know. There's there's not a whole lot out there on his life, but um, there's a little bit. He was one of the 14 holy helpers. Now, briefly, in the Middle Ages, there was uh, a terrible plague going around called the Black Plague. And the people that would catch this plague would die within a matter of hours. And so they were, uh, of course, you know, if you're taking your salvation seriously, you're very worried. You want to get the, the the last sacrament in time, make sure that you're prepared. And so there were 14 saints that were invoked um, by the people who were concerned about the plague or who uh, contracted the plague. And they were all, St. Giles, for instance, was invoked by people who wanted to make a good confession. Um, St. Blaise is one of these 14 holy helpers. They prayed to him for the throat problems, and each one of them had a different thing. So he was one of the 14 holy helpers, but he was a physician. He was a doctor, and he lived in the 13th century in Armenia. Later, he became a bishop, and this was done by popular demand. The people recognized his holiness and wanted him to become their bishop. So he was uh, consecrated a bishop. Now, at this time, remember, the third century is when the persecutions ended and Christianity was legalized. It was you're finally allowed to practice the the Christian faith in public. This started with the Emperor Constantine, who became a Catholic, was the first Christian emperor. And um, also remember that during this time, there was the emperor, and then there were, you might say, co-emperors. The co- one of the co-emperors at the time of Constantine was um, Licinius. Now, together, Constantine and Licinius legalized Christianity in its practice, ended the persecutions against the Catholic Church, but then later on, Licinius took back his word. He went back on his word and raised another persecution. And it was during this time that St. Blaise was martyred. The life of St. Blaise tells us that during this persecution, God revealed to St. Blaise that he should leave. He should flee the town so that he would be spared and be able to take care of his flock. 
So he fled. He left the town and went to hide in a cave on the top of a mountain. And when he was there, many animals would come to the cave, uh, all sorts of animals. They trusted St. Blaise. They loved him. The birds would bring him food every day. But the birds would not leave after they dropped off the food. They wouldn't leave until St. Blaise gave them a blessing. And then they'd just scurry off, happy as, happy as a lark, so to speak. And um, so they take care of them. But during this time, there were a lot of hunters that would go to that mountain and, and look for food. And during that time, the governor or one of the knights there sent up his hunters to look for some game. When the hunters went up there, they noticed St. Blaise surrounded with animals. And they couldn't shoot any of the animals, they, or they couldn't kill any of them. So they went back and reported St. Blaise to the governor. He then, then the, the governor sent up some other soldiers to capture him. And again, they came and saw the animals. The animals were protecting St. Blaise. Well, St. Blaise welcomed them to the cave and said, well, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome to come in because it means that our Lord has not forgotten me. So he told the animals to leave him and let the men come in. They did. And it says that all the animals waited outside with a sad look on their face. They were a little bit worried about, uh, about their owner, St. Blaise. And so finally they took him away to town and along the way, he worked a, a few miracles. There was one that a, um, woman with a son came to him. Now, the son of this woman had choked on a fishbone and was lodged in the baby's throat. And the woman came to St. Blaise for help. And he just simply imposed his hands on the baby and, and said a prayer. And the, the child was cured. And this is the reason why we have the blessing of throats on St. Blaise. But there's another story. And this explains why we use candles for the blessing of throats. And that is this, that there was a certain widow at the time. She was very poor. A wolf had come and stolen her pig. So the widow came to St. Blaise and asked for help. And St. Blaise told her, well, don't worry, the pig will return. Meanwhile, the, the wolf came back to the woman's house and dropped off the pig alive. Then when St. Blaise was put in prison, because he wouldn't give up his faith, um, the woman killed the pig and gave the food to St. Blaise. And along with it, brought, brought a candle to light up his prison cell and told him that every year I will take a candle and present it in your church. And so that's where we get the the use of the custom of using candles on that day to bless the throat of of the people. And finally, because he wouldn't give up his faith, so Saint Blaise was uh, tortured. His uh, flesh was torn with wool combs, and finally, he was beheaded along with um, with a number of other women and children. He was uh, 
he was martyred for the faith. You know, as you as you're describing that, Father, my first reaction is to say, you know, how gruesome. But I'm trying to put my corrective lenses on, and what I really should be saying is how glorious, really, that um, he was willing to endure those. It's, it, it, gruesome takes on a different um, light when you are seeing it through the eyes of faith, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. I mean the. One of the greatest honors, you know, spiritually speaking, obviously, naturally speaking, it is very repugnant to any of us to think about, but one of the greatest privileges is to be able to give up one's life um, for the faith and for, for God. That's one of the, the greatest privileges that God can give uh, give to a person. And so St. Blaise received that grace and now has... Uh, you know, a special crown in heaven for having done so. For those of you who are just Um, joining, you are listening to the liturgical life on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner. We're joined today by Charles McGuire, and we've been discussing most recently St. Blaise, but before this, we were discussing Candlemas, and before that, we were discussing the importance of the liturgical year and liturgical seasons. I want to remind you that liturgical year is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. You can obtain written permission by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. I'm sorry, Father, I I interrupted. You were going to say something. Oh, no, no, that's fine. Um, But I did want to add something else from his life, and it does have a connection with why we do the Blessing of Throats, aside from that part about the the fishbone lodged in the child's throat. But there's a legend, there's a a story, a true story, that just before he was, St. Blaise was um, martyred for the faith, he asked God for a special favor. He asked him for the power of curing all those who would pray to him for help. It says that there was then a voice from heaven that answered that his request was to be granted by God. And so that's, an, that's a beautiful thought for the Feast of St. Blaise, that this was a promise of, of God, that whoever invoked him would be heard. And so when we go up to the communion rail for our blessing of throats and ask his intercession, or his intercession for anything else for that matter, we should have great confidence that that promise will be fulfilled. Mm, indeed. You know, Father, as I was thinking about your St. Blaise being a martyr and the the color of red, it's so evocative when we are watching you say, you know, say mass. And I'm sure that moment occurs for you when you're vesting, you know, when you when you're putting on your vestments and then you you get to it and at the bottom is this red chasuble and that mindfulness there. I, I thought again of crisscrossing, you know, in intertwining our daily life with with our liturgical life. And I thought, for those of us who, who can, I, I imagine if, let's say, you, you wear a suit to work, maybe a, a red tie would be in order that day. Or if you're a, a, a woman, maybe there's a, a scarf or, or something that you can incorporate in that uh, that turns the audience, the, the, the audience, the, the, the faithful at Mass. Uh, the same color as the as the priest in, in a small way we can participate in your own vesting 
I, I don't know if I'm just being uh, uh, infected by the fact that everyone here in Paris is so fashion conscious that I would suggest something like that. But um, <laughs> but it occurred to me just now as you were talking, as we were thinking about St. Blaise and, and the red vestments. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good practice. I know people that do. And in fact, there was a gentleman who came to the Mass on Epiphany the other evening wearing a tie of the three kings on their, their camels on the way to Bethlehem. So I think anything that you can do in that regard um, to observe, to remind yourself and others too, of the liturgical spirit, I think is a very good thing, no matter how small it is. Um, you know, if I if I see someone come to church on uh, an Advent Sunday with a purple tie, I think really one of the first things I think about is, well, it's Advent. They in turn have helped to raise my mind to more heavenly things. And so you, you take part in all of that. So I think it's yeah. a good idea. Yeah, well, well, as a man, I, I know he must have gone through some labor to find, you know, a thoughtful, uh, tasteful purple tie. So there was uh, definitely <laughs> some penance. There was some penance involved in that as well, Father. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the nice thing about wearing black all the time, Father, is you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. It's true. But just think of this. If you're you're humbled by wearing a purple tie, imagine coming to work with a, a rose-colored tie on, uh, on Rose Sunday. So, <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, but, you've got, um, got to find the right, the right, uh, right thing to, to complement the, the, the time of the, the liturgy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, but obviously, if you don't mind my saying this as well, the, you mentioned the red vestments and, and all of that. You notice when the priest comes and blesses your throat, most often those candles are tied together with what? With a red ribbon. And that yeah. is to symbolize St. Blaise's martyrdom. So all of those things have symbolism and meaning when they take pl place in the liturgy. So there's, a, there's an enchantment and a, a sacredness to our everyday objects. I think that's part of what uh, St. Blaise also, you, you the Feast of Candlemas, you, you brought out very well, you know, what the importance is of the candle, but then we see a pivot for it and uh, another sanctification or another another use of it right away. And it, it makes us very aware of, I, I think, of that, that verse from St. Paul about, you know, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with, with principalities and powers. And we can't see them because we are, we still have this mortal shell that prevents us from seeing the spiritual world as it is around us. And these signs, as you refer to them, are material reminders in everyday objects, candles, wax, uh, string, a flame. They're, they're little reminders of the much, much more monumental spiritual world that's all around us that's invisible. Oh, absolutely. And uh, we, should, we should make these things uh, sacramentals and, and different things like that, a part of our daily life because of that. You know, our fight is against principalities and powers and, and uh, the spiritual world. But we have to remember one, one thought is that 
the devil hates Our Lady so much because in the end she will come and conquer him. And he can't stand to be to think that he will be defeated, first of all, by a human being, but then by a woman. Not a man, but a woman. He can't think, he can't stand that because of his pride. But then, to humble the demons even more, God makes him subject to to inanimate objects with a blessing, the St. Benedict medals, these blessed candles of the purification and all of that, they have power over the demons. And we should always remember that, that he is subject to them. God humbles him uh, to make that take place. As a matter of practicum, Father, should families be bringing boxes and boxes of candles to the altar uh, or after mass uh, on Candlemas, is this their opportunity to get everything blessed? What's what's the practical side of a feast that is the blessing of candles? Should should families be prepped and ready for that? Is that something that's more a responsibility of the parish? How does that work? Well, I think uh, it's always a good thing if you want to keep some extra candles in your home, bring them. Bring them and just uh, bring them in advance, not right before the ceremony. That uh, <laughs> that oftentimes makes it rough. But bring them a couple days in advance and t- put your name on them and just uh, ask the priest at your parish uh, if you can do that. Then you can have a, a supply of them for your home. I think that's a good practice. And in fact, I know of some people that do it. Um, it's good to keep blessed candles, blessed objects in there for use. Um, Use in the home in times of storm, different things like that. So, yeah, I I like that idea. And, yes, people should should really think in advance about these feasts. Prepare for them. Read about them. You know, liturgical year. Read that or the butler's life of the saints. Get yourself ready for the feasts so that you can observe them properly. Don't wait till the day of and to learn what's the purpose of the feast. What am I supposed to learn to look in advance uh, to prepare yourself to profit from these feasts? I I think for me personally, being a bit of a liturgical nerd, I just like the (laughs) idea of something that was in the company of our Lord or or close to our our Lord physically being in my house. Same thing with blessed palms. Uh, when you know when you have those that it was it was in the liturgy or it was part of a liturgy it was near a liturgy and now it's in your house that any 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 things that we can take and consecrate and have around us I think it's a good thing and, and candles for this time and obviously there's no palms for this season so we wouldn't have that opportunity but at least as far as candles go that could be something that that outlasts this season actually that that goes throughout the entire liturgical year. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You know, it's a very good thing. And, uh, you know, you're right. The the church puts special blessings on these items for a reason. And you should, uh, all Catholics should make use of them, not ignore these sacramentals. They're powerful, uh, powerful things that that the church and God has given us. For, for those of you who are just joining us, we're coming to the tail end of our broadcast here. And you'll notice we didn't take any questions on Twitter or on 
uh, on the telephone today. I think mostly because I did not have a chance to do a zero show with Father McGuire uh, last season. So I, I didn't want to uh, make the first show particularly challenging with, with callers, et cetera. Um, we do have a few minutes. I will say if, if you do have any questions, uh, those of you who are listening live, again, mostly uh, our shows are listened to in podcast format. They're downloaded later, especially in the United States. It's the middle of the day and people might be at work. If you do have questions, our Twitter handle is at True Restoration. And if you hashtag it liturgical year, um, I'll, we'll try to answer any questions within the show. If not, Father will take those questions and put them into uh, uh, the next, uh, into our next show. If, so you can leave those questions there on Twitter. If you do want to call in, um, we've just got a few minutes. I'll, I'll just open up the phone line briefly. It's 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. Again, we're at the end of our broadcast, but if there was any, any small quick question that you could ask Father about Candlemas, the presentation, St. Blaise, candles in general, the liturgical year in general, or uh, or about the the observances for, for these feasts or these seasons, feel free to call in and ask. Otherwise, Father, as we're waiting for any sort of questions we might get, I'm just going to defer back to you and say, is there anything, we've covered quite a lot today, is there anything that you um, you you missed? And I, I one of the challenges of of speaking a language more regularly that you don't have an opportunity to is you realize three or four minutes later that you said the wrong thing. And, and as I was describing King's cake to you, I realized I was saying it wrong in French. I said the King of Cakes, and what I meant to say was King's cake, um, which is not the roi du so uh, just I'm offering that correction to not offend any of our French listeners, but I was referring to Galette de Roi and um, the the cake of king, the cake of the king, not the king of cakes. Um, so that's my sort of correction for the show today. Father, did you have anything that we missed that you wanted to go back to and, and hit before uh, we uh, we headed out? Um. At this time, I can't think of anything. I'm sure as soon as I hang up the phone, then <laughs> I'll think of a million things. But um, at this time, I can't think of anything. I've got an email question here that just came in. Where, Father, where can we buy the correct candle to be blessed? Uh, for what? I guess the question is, what kind of candles are we supposed to buy and where can we buy them? Generally speaking, they should uh, ideally be the beeswax candle, again, because of the, the great symbolism behind it, uh, being the, the purity of the wax and the, symbolizing the purity of Christ. Um, so uh, oftentimes you can find them anywhere on the Internet. Liturgical stores uh, generally have them. So just look up, just type in Google different uh, Catholic liturgical stores, and you can find them. That would be my first recommendation. But um, generally speaking, though, I don't think it's strictly necessary. But generally speaking, the candles we blessed on St. Blaise are the candles that were already blessed 
for the presentation. Well, um, I don't think we have any other questions, Father, for today. Thanks so much for, for joining us today, giving of your time uh, to, to, get, to get through this. Well, thank you very much for having me and uh, look forward to the next one. <laughs> All right. And uh, thanks so much, Father. Hmm. Uh, for, for those of you uh, who've been listening to our show, remember, as always, uh, we at the Restoration Radio Network would ask if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated a heartful, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If any questions or comments or would like to reproduce our work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle at True Restoration or via email, mail at truerestoration.org. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. Thanks for joining us. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.